right. Good afternoon. Today on the Free Willed and Fired Up podcast, we are tackling what is supposed to be part three of three of the Satanism and Culture podcast mini series that I've been going on about the past couple of recordings. Now, just a fair notice, if uh, if we manage to get too caught up in discussion to where we go over an hour or so with our talks on Satanism and culture, then you know I may make the executive decision to add on an extra episode just so we're not rushing through uh, everything. So just be advised on that. And other than that, let's start off this podcast with just reviewing what those uh, nine satanic statements are uh, that I think have definitely taken a root into the uh, cultural meme, so to speak, of our society today, whether people fully realize it or not, and whether people intentionally put it into place in our culture or not. Nevertheless, there are definitely still shades of these values, beliefs, and so on that are prevalent uh, in our communities. And not only that, but growingly in our institutions, and in some cases, in other religious places as well that are seeming to embrace some of this. And so we need to really not only guard ourselves as Christians with how we uh, approach doctrine, but also we need to make sure that we're right uh, and righteous in our interpretation of the Bible so that we can spot when others belonging to other ideologies try to take, borrow from, and twist something that is originally of God, and then try to use it for their own purposes, where they try to reshape it and remake it into something that is not of God, that is indeed something of the devil, of Satan. And so, as we approach this, I want us to go ahead and go back over the nine satanic statements, and then as we go through what will be five through nine, you know, time permitting in this podcast episode, I want us to really start to pay attention to all the ways that they, they will take things that are originally good and of God and how they then try to twist it. Kind of like how the serpent twisted that which was originally meant to be good, those phrases and statements that would otherwise be reassuring to someone who was a God follower, but then would twist them and tweak them just so in order to manipulate um, those who are either too innocent or, unfortunately, ignorant in the word of God and the will of God and can therefore be not only taken advantage of, but but led astray from uh, the true word and will of God. So just keep that in mind as we go through these statements. I think you're going to see how the Satanists, in their ideology, with their values, beliefs, and practices, take something that is originally from God, but then try to twist it, and then repackage it, and then sell it to the culture to be implemented. And it it gets a pass, because there are plenty of people that help shape culture, who either intentionally or unintentionally think that it's good to go, think think that culture should embrace these values, and uh, the, the devastating effects to our community and to our society are evident to those who have eyes to see and ears uh, that can hear. And unfortunately, there's a, there's a growing number who are not able to do so. And so that just means that 
it's all the more uh, of a necessary duty for those of us who supposedly have the truth, right? who, who have the ability to see, who have the ability to stand up for what is right, to stand up for God, we have all the more responsibility to call this stuff out when it happens. And not only to call it out, but to try to find ways both in our own individual lives, but also in media and in the culture itself to try to counteract you know, this, this growing cultural meme that seems more and more satanic. And I don't even mean just straight up you know, Satanism, as people like to try to uh, straw man. But no, there, there are many shades and variants of Satanism, some that are more crafty and one might say less threatening, less in your face, but they are all nevertheless still evil and detrimental to not only people, but also to societies. And so we need to be sure that we are actively not only calling it out, but actively engaging in a kind of Christianity that is essentially countercultural, that is countercultural to a growingly satanic uh, society. So here we go. Satanic statement number one, Satan represents indulgence instead of abstinence. Satanic statement two, Satan represents vital existence instead of spiritual pipe dreams. Statement three, Satan represents undefiled wisdom instead of hypocritical self-deceit. Four, Satan represents kindness to those who deserve it instead of love wasted on ingrates. Five, Satan represents vengeance instead of turning the other cheek. Six, Satan represents responsibility to the responsible instead of concern for psychic vampires. Statement number seven. Satan represents man as just another animal, sometimes better, more often worse, than those that walk on all fours, who, because of his divine spiritual and intellectual development, has become the most vicious animal of all. Statement number eight. Satan represents all of the so-called sins, as they all lead to physical, mental, or emotional gratification. And lastly, satanic statement number nine, Satan has been the best friend of the church uh, and has been the best friend that the church has ever had, as he has kept it in business all these years. Okay, so as I said, we've already covered satanic statements one through four. So today we're going to be looking at statement five, and we're going to try and get all the way through to statement nine. But if not, then I'll just go ahead and add in another episode if it goes too far beyond an hour. Okay, so the general point as outlaid by uh, someone who's definitely taken a lot of time to not only understand the satanic statements outlined in the uh, satanic Bible by Anton Zandor LeVay, but it's also written by someone who uh, has a bit of a, not only an affiliation, but an admiration for the ideas and values put forward in these statements. And so, you, again, as we go through these, you'll be able to see that the person who has summarized uh, summarized these statements and what uh, LeVay said in his book about them, you'll find that the, the person certainly comes off a little bit biased in the sense that they try to portray the statements in the best possible light. And uh, they certainly portray it in a way that is a little less harsh than even what LeVay uh, described them as in his own book. 
And so that really does make you question, you know, the person who summarized the details of what LaVey meant with these different satanic statements, you know, are they approaching this where they knowingly have tried to soften the blow and the message and the ideology to try to make it more palpable uh, to the ignorant and uninitiated readers? You know, so are they are they making that conscious decision to do that as a way of trying to sort of coax people into a more radical ideology? Or are they really just doing it because, you know, they don't necessarily mean to. They, they honestly and heartfeltly uh, support what it is that he is doing and think that this is what LeVay uh, meant to communicate. But either way, uh, you'll see in these descriptions that it's very easy for someone who, who knows objective standards of truth and right and wrong, you know, morality and reality, and certainly someone who's coming from a background with, uh, with language. It's still easy for someone coming from that background to point out where, where the tricks are used. And again, whether they intended to do so or not doesn't matter. There's still some tricky language that was employed. And so we're going to try to take that apart, examine it, see why it was used, how it tries to twist you know, some original wording and ideas and values that uh, came about from the Bible, from God, in order to push this more satanic ideology. So number five read, Leaving wrongs unpunished merely encourages miscreants to continue preying on others. Those who do not stand up for themselves end up being trampled. This is not, however, an encouragement for misbehavior. Becoming a bully in the name of vengeance is not only dishonest, but it also invites others to bring retribution on you. Same goes for performing illegal actions of retribution. Break the law and you yourself become the miscreant that the law should come down on swiftly and harshly. Okay, so here's my commentary on that statement. So leaving wrongs unpunished certainly can encourage immoral people and criminals to keep committing sin. Absolutely it can. We see that all the time. We, we can catch it in the tone people use and even by the very words that they say and, of course, by the actions that they continue to commit. When people don't think that there is going to be an immediate consequence, they think that that gives them license to continue doing that objectively wrong thing. Because in the mindset of someone who thinks in ignorance, who thinks relativistically and subjectively, in their mind, if they don't immediately get hurt from it, then, or, or if they don't find themselves caring about what they do, either to themselves or to others, if it doesn't pull on their hearts in that way, then it must be either morally neutral or acceptable to do. And of course, this is a wrong way to approach life. And yet many people do so that just because the consequence is immediate, they think that that is licensed, uh, not only that it is good, but licensed that it should be uh, continued, that you should keep on doing it, all right, more and more. And uh, what these people fail to realize is just the idea that just because there isn't an immediate consequence doesn't mean that a consequence isn't coming. And it also certainly doesn't mean that just because a consequence doesn't happen here and now 
that somehow the consequence when it does eventually come is going to be small. More than likely, those consequences that, that take longer to set in oftentimes are consequences that are uh, less and less likely to be sustained, meaning like once the consequence actually lands in the person for their behavior, it's usually an irreversible consequence that more often than not will lead to uh, death and destruction and on multiple levels, whether we're, whether we're thinking figuratively or literally, whether we're thinking spiritually you know, or physically or emotionally. It, it all applies the same when you commit acts that are objectively wrong, immoral, and evil. And even though the consequence doesn't register on your broken moral radar as a fallen sinful being, that does not negate that when God eventually brings that judgment hammer down, as he should, as a just God should, to someone who is evil and immoral, there is more than likely not going to be any turning back. Because at that point, God in his grace will have already given you multiple chances to correct the evils that you were committing, to, to change your heart, to change the choices that you make with your own free will. And eventually, ultimate justice has to be brought upon you. And unfortunately, you know, people try to say, well, in our fallen sinful state, what happens if, if maybe we're, we're receiving these consequences, you know, these minor consequences, but we're just not, we're not realizing it. Well, the Bible, in God's word, in several cases, you know, it states that, no, you're aware of it. More often than not, people know when they're doing something wrong. They just don't care. They don't care because when they are led, when they are slaves to sin, they go off of whatever gratifies sin. And whatever pleases their sinful nature pleases them because well, we're fallen in that kind of way. And you know what? Those things where if someone tries to say, well, what about what happens if someone's conscience? You know, what if their heart is so far seared that maybe they would want to turn back and stop receiving consequence, but then, you know, they keep getting it. You know, what, what out is there? Does God give these people an out, no matter how far gone they are, to avoid this this larger consequence that, that's irreversible down the line? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. You can probably think of the worst possible person who's done some of the most immoral things. And there are instances in the Bible, even. Take uh, the story of Saul to Paul, where he can take someone who has committed grave acts of evil and immorality, even against God's very people. And if that person is willing, if that person is willing, God will open up their hearts to let them see the wrongs that they have done, to let them see with objective eyes the truth and the right and the wrong of what they do, what they've done, and what they could do in the future. And people are able to have their hearts and their minds renewed enough to be able to make that recognition, that that repentance, that moment of genuine repentance, 
that moment of being able to recognize that that they have done wrong and that they cannot fix all of their issues in and of themselves, that they need God. And when they then devote themselves to trusting in God, not only to heal what they have done wrong to themselves and to others and to the world around them, but, but also when they trust in God to lead them, to guide their steps going forward, you see that the consequence for these people will be avoided in the last days on the day of judgment. Regardless of how evil their actions might have been before, if they truly, genuinely, honestly show, not only in their hearts and in their minds, but through their actions, that they have repented and have turned to a life of righteousness and holiness, regardless of what people think, regardless of how people judge, if they are not judging from a perspective of God in these people, even if they're Christians, but especially those who are not followers of Christ, if they judge and say, no, this person has done so many evil things, you know, that they deserve the utmost ultimate punishment, even if they say that they've turned a new leaf, even if they say that they've completely, you know, repented of everything and have lived a life for several years, you know, of holiness to try to make amends, not only first and foremost to God, but then also to everyone. Oh, well, then that person, no, in my sight, they're still not worthy of forgiveness. They're still not worthy of, of, of heaven. And you know what? Those people, those people, many of whom who go around with the title of Christian, those people did not have a godly heart. Those people are not thinking with a godly mind. They're thinking from a very, a very selfish, ungodly, fallen way, even though they still have the, the title you know, of, of Christian over them. Many people will come to God with the title of Christian, but that doesn't mean he's going to accept them as followers of Christ if, they're, if their heart and if their minds and if their actions do not reflect that they are actually children of God. Then as the Bible states, by their own measure, they too shall be measured. And so people go around thinking that God will excuse the ultimate consequence from them just because they call themselves a Christian, even though everything else in their life speaks against Christ. They think that they're going to avoid ultimate justice in the end of days, and they think that they have license because they have the title of Christian that, that they can condemn in an ungodly way anyone and everyone that they personally disagree with or hate or despise. And they're going to learn real quick that there are going to be plenty of people that God permits into heaven. And guess what? It, and it's going to be people that they might not think are worthy. And at that point, we need to really realize when we're talking about punishment, when we talk about consequence, we need to remember who is the ultimate authority that decides objectively what is right and wrong, 
what is true, what is false, who is worthy and who is not worthy of heaven, who is the ultimate measure and standard of that? It's God, not us. It is God. And so you know what? A lot of people are going to be surprised by some of the people that make it into heaven because they were not thinking, not viewing humanity from a godly perspective, but rather from a fallen, sinful perspective. And there are going to be plenty of people who are probably going to think that, oh, because they call themselves a Christian, that, they're going to, that God's going to permit them into heaven. And they're going to be sorely disappointed. And God's, God in his justice is not going to leave any room for doubt as to why they were not being permitted into heaven. And so just as we approach this, this idea of consequence, leaving wrongs unpunished, and how that encourages all right, more uh, acts of evil just because there isn't an immediate consequence. I want us to think about that. And there's still so much more I'm going to say about this point, point number five. It's just so crucial that we understand that point as we get into some of the other points that I have here about, you know, unpunished wrongs and so on. Okay, so why does God seem to take so long then? Because he does. He, he does take a long time in certain cases. And we tend to only really pay attention, right, to, to all the times where God takes his time with bringing about consequence and punishment to people. We never really stop to see how often God delivers quick consequences. We only focus on how God takes a long time, longer than we think is appropriate with the people that we think are not deserving of more time, right, to escape consequence. That's why we like to focus on, you know, why does God take so long? Well, let's talk about that. Let's think about why God takes so long. So a couple of things. A, how do you know he hasn't and isn't working out punishment for evil? B, Have you considered that God withholds final just punishment for a definitive later date because if he didn't, then everyone, including you and me, would go to hell with no chance of heaven? God shouldn't have to withhold his justice. This is true. God shouldn't have to be patient with us. But he is because he loves us. God shouldn't have to withhold his justice, but he temporarily does so for our benefit, for our sake, because he loves us and knows that there is the potential in all human beings to change their ways, to repent. And because he knows there is the potential to where we may hear God's word, that we may respond when he comes to us in whatever manner he chooses, whether it be through his word or through other means, regardless what the means are, God has more faith in us than we have in ourselves, quite frankly. And God, of course, has more grace towards us than perhaps we have towards ourselves and towards others, if we're just being honest. And so he wants to give us that time, even the worst of us, to be able to change our ways, to turn to him. All right, it's almost like the prodigal son who goes away for a while. And then how God rejoices when that when that straying son comes back when that straying son comes back not only more devoted to god but more more ready to acknowledge why evil is wrong because 
that experience and that knowledge usually just pushes people even further towards God because unfortunately, and they shouldn't have to have done this to come to God, but more often than not, people experience a lot of sin and then after seeing some of the consequence of that, it actually propels them even more to avoid it once they've come to Christ, once they've come to God, because they know they do not want that for themselves or anyone else. And they recognize it as something that needs to be not only avoided, but actively counteracted, actively defended against and, and attacked, quite frankly. That's why God, of course, appreciates those who have stayed on the right path longer than others. But God also celebrates greatly those who have lived a life of wrong, who, are, who have been deserving of consequence, but then who makes the right choice, the right decision with their own free will to, to throw off their previous commitment to sin and to, to fully take on this new commitment to holiness through God, right? through God and by God. It is a gift created by God. It is a gift that can only be truly taken away if we should turn our backs of our own free will away from God. But make no mistake, if someone genuinely makes this change, this repentance, and comes to God, then that consequence will be avoided, even if we fall short from time to time, as, as those who have been born again still do. Of course, we still fall short. We're still tempted, and sometimes, you know what? We don't always go to God as we should, in the way that we should. We don't rely on God all the time as we should. Yes, our, our ability to deal with sin is, is greatly helped by God. And, and when we go to God, our life is going to be so much better. But even still, if we're not careful, we need to watch out because that consequence can still be there. That's what I'm saying. Even those who think that they are Christians, but really are Christians in name only, they might have been a genuine Christian back in the day. But if they have grown weak in their relationship with Christ, if they have disregarded Christ's objective truth and morality, and they've, they've gone back to a worldly, fleshly, fallen, sinful way of approaching the world and themselves and others, and if they put that into practice, if they rely on the direction of sin more than on the direction of righteousness and holiness found in God, if they rely on sin, what the world and what, what the devil says they should do and how they should approach things and view things, there is going to be that punishment, justly so. That's apostasy. Sure, you might, you might not even say, because you don't want to admit it, you might not even say that you've committed apostasy against God and are going to get a consequence in the last day, on the day of judgment. You're going to get justice. You may not want to say that. You may not want to admit that. Because no one 
who doesn't have a humble heart that lives and, and thrives in the humility which God gives to his people whom he loves, if you do not have someone who is coming from that humble standpoint, then they will not want to accept that which they have done wrong. And at the end of the day, whether you accept or not, what you, if you can't accept what you've done wrong, at the end of the day, God is not going to care that you blinded yourself to the just punishment that you are deserving of. God's not going to care that you forgot his objective standard, that you threw away the truth for a lie because you grew spiritually lazy in your relationship with him. No, at the end of the day, consequences will be given. And anyone who tries to say, oh, we don't believe in withholding consequence in any way, or, or we don't believe in a consequence that takes a long time to come into effect. These are the same people who also say, oh, God's wrong to punish evil people, to, to punish sinners who never come to Christ. He's wrong, apparently, to punish these people by essentially rendering them into hell for eternity. So what is it then? You're saying people should be punished for evil acts that they commit. But then y'all say, oh, but, but not punished that much, huh? You can't say, on the one hand, God doesn't punish people harshly and quickly enough. But then on the other hand, you say, oh, well, well God's, God's too harsh, actually. <laughs> God's too harsh with his punishment. And when you consider punishment for eternity, what might seem like a long time here to us in our life for these what, 80 to 100 years, roughly, that we all now live for, if everything is going okay, for the most part in our lives, if we live that long, we think God takes too long. You know, the, these evil people, you know, they're able to live so, you know, such long lives without any, you know, real ultimate judgment. What, what is going on here? You need to consider that on the timeline of eternity, those 80 to 100 years that certain evil people might be able to live, that's not even a blip that would even register on the timeline of eternity. So what you might think from this worldly perspective is a long time to deliver judgment and a consequence from the perspective of God. Oh, it comes very quickly. In the time span of eternity, if these 80 or 100 years in order to receive punishment, oh, it's faster than even instantaneous. But people don't see that. People don't see that because they don't view things from a godly perspective when it comes to justice, when it comes to consequence. You can see this evident when a Satanist says this. Says it's wrong, it's immoral to leave wrongs unpunished. But their motivation, their solution, their way of going about it is not of God. You know, they might recognize the truth as the devil will surely even recognize truth and has recognized certain truths in the Bible. But what they do with that truth is not righteous, is not holy, is not of God, is not moral. 
And yet, because they're more vocal, people in their ignorance tend to think that the Satanists, that the devil, is the one who gets things right, who calls things as they are fairly and accurately, and that God apparently is making some missteps. And so we as Christians, we who are born again, who truly have eyes to see and ears to hear, people who are actually ready and able with a responsibility to God to be able to defend not only the word of God, God's nature, God's approach to dealing with his creation and with sin. We need to be willing to take a stand for that, but also for these people who, who cannot see, who cannot hear, who cannot perceive God correctly. We need to be the ones who are putting them into that perspective. We need to show them what it's like to operate from that perspective. They're not going to do it themselves. They're not going to figure it out themselves. God has made that clear. We can't just figure out how to be holy in, uh, by ourselves. Righteousness does not come naturally to us. We are not naturally good. We are bent from our fallen sinful state to mess up, to not live an objectively truthful, objectively moral life. And that's why people need to see. And it's going to take a lot of convincing. You know what? Some people might not even ever accept the evidence and accept the rationality, accept the logic that real Christians and apologists bring to the table. And so at a certain point, you know, we also just have to come to grips with the term that, look, we can show them the way. We can help lead them. We can help lead them to the lake, lead them to the river, but you know what? We can't make them drink the water from it. They have to make that choice in and of themselves. And the devil has been so crafty that he's even tried to use pseudoscience as a way of trying to tell people that, that they don't even have any free will. They don't even have the ability to make the choice to avoid doing that which is detrimental and deleterious to their well-being, to the well-being of others, and so on. People think, well, this is just who I am. This is just my biology. You know, this is just how, how my, my cells dance to, to doing this kind of action. And there, there's nothing that I can do to change what my biology has apparently determined for me to do. This, this of course, goes back to biological determinism. And you know what? At the end of the day, this is a trick and a lie that people pull over their own eyes. Pull over their own eyes. And that's why, again, whenever it comes to consequences at the end of days, on the day of judgment, people say, oh, I didn't do what was right because I was told that I didn't have the ability to make a free will choice. I was told by by these worldly people who were not of God, I was told by these people that, that oh, that, that I didn't have the ability. Meanwhile, there was plenty of evidence all around that I did. Oh, I wanted to listen to these people who told me I didn't have the ability, whether it be out of ignorance or whether it be out of a way of excusing myself from the wrongs 
that I would commit if I would just believe that I didn't have any real choice in the matter. You know what? At the end of days, on that day of judgment, when you try to give that excuse to God, guess what? It's not going to work. It is not going to work. And he's going to say, he's even going to tell you there was evidence all day, every day, all around you. Billions of examples that you were indeed able to make those free will choices, that you did not have to commit those acts of evil and immorality, that you could have come to me, you could have relied on me instead of relying on these people who tried to take science, which was originally from the church, tried to take this and wrapped it up together in their own philosophy and ideology into a type of pseudoscience to try to convince you of what was right there for you to see and convince you that that really wasn't there. Pull their little Jedi mind trick on you with the, with the supposed cover of science to try to tell you that, oh, biological determinism is the truth and that free will is the lie even though clear evidence exists, far more evidence for free will exists than there ever was for pure, flat-out biological determinism. So he's going to say on the last day, no, it's your fault for falling for the lie because my people, myself, everything in creation spoke against that way of thinking. And you fell for it. You fell for it because you wanted to fall for it. You made the choice to believe that you did not have a choice. And so you'll be punished. The consequence will still come. All right, so anyways, let's get back to my points on this fifth statement. So I believe we went through A and B. Let's get into C. Just because withholding punishment can encourage sinners to keep sinning if they wrongfully and ignorantly think that they won't get punished ever... But notice that I'm using the word can, as in it's a possibility, but it's not a guaranteed outcome. Why? Because we have free will, and we have the ability to make our own choices, even those that differ from societal norms or are viewed as taboo, and that those free will choices are not fully determined by our nature or our environment, and that we do have the agency and ability to make right choices in spite of our many wrong ones. Common grace allows for this. The law of God written on our hearts allows for this. That being said, the best way to ensure this change, the best ways to hedge your bets against sin is to have the Holy Spirit, God, Jesus Christ, on your side to help guide you and keep you from being tempted to commit your old immoral actions. God respects this free will because creation, love, and so on without it would mean nothing. Whether we accept it or not, the possibility of potential good far outweighs the consequence of potential evil. If it didn't, God wouldn't do it. What I mean by this, the potential all right, of good far outweighs the consequence of potential evil. All right, a lot of people say, well, why, why doesn't God punish immoral actions right away? Why doesn't the consequence come right away, even by our, by our worldly standard? You know, why does it take sometimes years? Did you ever think... Did you ever think that in the perfect mind of God, he didn't realize that he doesn't consider that if evil, if sin were punished immediately, that not a single created person or thing 
anyone with any semblance of moral agency, all, not a single one of us, would have a chance to be saved? Not a single one of us would make it into heaven? And so, in the mind of God, since that obviously is not what he wants, he does not create merely for destruction. He creates so that the creation may abide in the will, in the love, and in the pleasure of the Creator for all of eternity. God does not create merely to destroy. God creates with a purpose and a good purpose. A purpose bent on life, bent on morality, bent on truth, and so on. And so if this is His purpose, if this is His motivation, when it comes to those things which He creates, then obviously... He has to say, look, I have to then deal with this fallen state, with this sinful state that my creation that I love is in. So I have to square the free will that they need to have in order to properly love and accept me and abide in me. I have to find a way to square that with the potential that their sinful nature will drive them, will tempt them constantly to do that which is wrong. And so you have this perspective. Put yourself in God's shoes for just a moment and think, how would you square that situation? You have a creation that you love and that you don't wish to die. You don't wish to perish in, in hell flames for all of eternity. You gave them free will, but they also have to deal with a sinful nature. And so you're dealing with really a creation that you don't want to go, but is almost driving themselves to go away from you. So what do you have to do? You, you allow that free will to continue because the possibility of having that ultimate good thing that God desires from his creation to turn to him of our own choice, to do what is right of our own choice, that, the potential for that, far outweighs in his mind not only the potential but the consequences of constantly choosing sinful actions. Make no mistake, the power of holiness and righteousness far, out, far exceeds the power of sin. It far exceeds it. Even a small group or pocket of holiness and righteousness in a group of people is enough to take on an entire world of sin and immoral people, of sinful people and immoral people. God recognizes this. People who are born again, who are true followers of Christ, recognize this. This is why God, this is why Christ died for us on the cross. And not just for us who are Christians, but died for the entire world because he knows that every last one of us, even those that we might think are the most evil among us, every one of us has the potential has the potential to make the free will choice to be holy and to repent, to turn to God, to cast off 
their chains of sin and to follow him, to take up their cross and to follow him into the gates of heaven. And so you ask, why does he take so long? It's for that reason. He sees the potential for good in everyone, even when we don't. And the potential, which even exists in some of the worst people that we can think of in the history of human civilization, even the potential, the possibility for them to make that right choice one day. That would have been enough to justify why they were not immediately destroyed. And make no mistake, even those who do not use the time that God permits to all wisely, even if they use that time to just promote more sin and immorality, God doesn't take an L in that. God doesn't take a loss in that. God will still have use for all people, even those who reject him and try to act out against him and those who follow him. Where even the evil that these sinful people might commit, these godless people might commit, God in his power and his sovereignty will use those people for his greater good. before bringing about their ultimate consequence and judgment. All right, now let's keep going with this. So God has more faith in us than we have in ourselves. Where we write people off for the slightest offenses, God is gracious and knows that even the worst person in the world can change in time with his help. See Saul to Paul for a good example of this. Now, agreed... Those who don't take a stand, hold firm to principles and protection of themselves and their loved ones will be taken advantage of or worse by a sinful uh, and wicked person or group. So you got to be able to take a stand. A lot of people think that in order to be holy, you can't take a stand against evil. And that's just wrong. Willingly making the choice to let evil run rampant over you and your loved ones and your community, your world your culture, your society, just standing by while that happens, that's wrong. That's sinful in and of itself. The Bible even says so. If those who know what is right refuse to do it, refuse to take a stand for it, that is a sin in and of itself. All right, Christians, believe it or not, we are not called to be pacifists as the world thinks of passivity. We show grace, but grace is actually not the same thing as passivity. Not in the spiritual sense, because of course our battle, and, and there is a battle, it's not, even, it's not even against flesh and blood. Our battle is against the powers and the principalities right, that are above. So whenever I say that we're not pacifists, I don't mean to say that, you know, that we go around trying to attack, physically attack people or anything. That's not what I mean. We are not pacifists because we do not just let sinful ideologies, immorality, that which is false, that which is wrong, we do not just let it go. And of course, we're in a culture and a society right now where it tries to tell us that everything is relative and subjective and neutral, and so we should let it go. 
in, uh, in the spirit of, of unity and coexistence and tolerance. But you know what? Christians aren't called to be tolerant of sin and of immorality. We are not told to be united with that. God wants us to be holy, completely holy, 100%, not a single drop of sin is to be allowed, celebrated, protected, defended, or anything. It is not supposed to have anything to do with us. Sin's got nothing to do with God. Sin's supposed to have nothing to do with us. And yet we live in a culture, we live in a society that tells us to accept it. Accept it into our own personal views and beliefs. Into our own churches even. That we have to mix sin with holiness for the sake of tolerance. Christ might have gone to speak with the sinful, but he never went to the sinful to affirm their sin. He went to the sinful as a loving, caring, and yet unwavering beacon of righteousness and holiness and healing for those who were sick physically, emotionally, and spiritually. But he never, ever compromised and coexisted with evil in his spirit and in his philosophy and ideology. Not one bit in the church he never called for anyone to accept in those who willingly choose evil over good who knowingly choose sin over holiness. He never, ever called the church or Christians to do that. That is something that the world tries to push because the world, whether they outright say it or not, the world hates God. The world hates genuine Christians. The world wants Christianity to go away. It wants it to be weeded out. And Christians, Christianity, can only truly be weeded out of their history books of the world and of humanity if it passively allows it to be weeded out and to be erased. I want that to sink in. So this idea of being passive, being walked all over, should not be allowed. Just not in the way that Satanists try to say it, but consider it from the way that God says we should be motivated in not allowing evil, not allowing people who want to hurt us and wrong us to continue in doing so. There is a difference. Okay, so again, agreed that That those who don't take a stand, hold firm to principles and protection of themselves and their loved ones will be taken advantage of or worse by a sinful and wicked person or group. This is why it is so important to recognize that we are fallen people in a fallen world, that sin is real, that we need God to protect us, change us, prepare us, and to give us the strength necessary 
to properly defend ourselves from all forms of attack, physical, emotional, spiritual, all of it. Now, again, LeVay uses moralistic language and arguments that his religion and worldview don't actually match up their object of worship. Right? It doesn't actually comport. The moralistic language that they try to use comes from God, come from standards of right and wrong established by God. So it doesn't comport with the, the personhood of Satan, of the devil, either figuratively or literally. It doesn't comport with it. It doesn't match up. And yet they try to push Satan in this godly way, in this softened godly way, trying to portray Satan as a being of a light, masquerading as a being of light, as the Bible tells us Satan does to try to trick us. And so to accept this characterization of Satan, figuratively or literally, is straight-up nonsense. Satanists don't get to use godly morals to somehow show that Satanism is superior to Christianity, to show that Satan is somehow superior to God. You don't get to do that. You don't get to use God to somehow bash God. That's nonsense. And again, LeVay has a hypocritical and paradoxical stance here, where he says in one statement that we should treat others as they treat us. But then here he says... We shouldn't bully others back if they bully us because then we become just as bad, if not worse, than the ones who wronged us in the first place. I.e., don't treat others as they treat us, but treat them as we want to be treated. Gee, that sounds awfully familiar to the golden rule, right? Of treat others as you want to be treated. Look at that. Satan and his corrupt logic can't out-God God. Any attempt to twist God's morality to somehow be from Satan like it is lazily done here, deservedly comes off as foolish. You see how before with the other satanic statement, all right, that no, we treat others as they treat us. See how that is quickly done away with, with these later statements where all of a sudden, oh, oh, okay, well, you can't actually, it's not good. It's not right. It's not moral actually to be a bully back to a bully. Yeah, okay, that, 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 you shouldn't do that. Well, hold up now. Hold up now. You can't claim to have treat others as they treat you and then treat others as you want to be treated. You can't hold both of those beliefs and values at the same time. You can't do it. The one cancels out the other. You have to choose one or the other. And it, and it looks like Satanists, just as quickly as they throw out the one, will quickly switch over to the other. It just depends on the circumstance and the context that that depends on who they're talking to and in what way and what their motivation is with that person. That's really what determines what what face they want to put on. You know, do, do they want to stay straight up as a Satanist who believes in this rough, irrational, and radical way of viewing the world? Or do they want to temporarily put on the mask of being a, someone who understands and comes at things from a godly perspective? until they feel the time is right to switch back to their, to their true face, all right, to the satanic face. Or we need to watch out for this because, yes, it is foolishness. It is nonsense to do this. It makes no sense to try to go back and forth with these two beliefs and values as a coherent ideology and philosophy and worldview. Absolutely. 
That's why, thank God, Christianity doesn't make us do this. It doesn't make us try to hold two absolutely contradictory values together. No, there's one objective standard of right and wrong. There's one objective standard of truth. There's one objective reality. It does not allow for holding two completely contradictory and opposing beliefs as this one and the same. Because you know what happens when you try to do that? Mental, spiritual, moral chaos is what happens when you do that. And you know what? Some Satanists don't know this, and you, but you know what? Some Satanists do know this. Some Satanists do know that when you put people into this state of mental, moral, spiritual chaos, it still prevents them from doing what is obviously right and true and good. Chaos does not breed order. (laughs) I know that certain groups out there like to push this idea of order out of chaos, but that's not the way it works. You don't throw on disorder into disorder in order to make order. That's not the way it works. It doesn't cancel it out. It only magnifies it. Only starting from a root basis of order can you get more order. And no one's ever multiplied order by order in order to get disorder, in order to get chaos. That's not how it works. Order brings about more order. Chaos only brings about more chaos. Satanists, those who are actually intelligent to an extent, I say intelligent but really foolish, for those who are crafty rather, they know this. They know this. And yet they push it anyways. Why? Because anything short of the godly standard of right and wrong and truth and reality is still a win for them. It's still a win for the devil, for Satan. It's still a win. Because people still are not going to God. They're still not viewing things from a godly perspective. They're still in this moral, spiritual chaos lost from God. It's still a win. It goes back to that old saying that the hero has the burden of having to win every time. But the villain has the luxury of only having to win once. Just once. The same principle applies here. There are many, many ways that you can lose, that you can act apart from God and be subject to the consequence that befalls those who act outside of what God commands. There are many ways that you can do that. There are many motivations, many reasons, many means by which someone can do that. And there's only one true way in which you can avoid that. And that way isn't compromised. That way does not compromise. God does not compromise. His ways are clear, objective, non-contradictory, and right there, plain to see for those who do not willingly blind themselves to it. So avoid. Recognize this stuff. Recognize when these Satanists do this, when they try to cause chaos. In, in their philosophy, by bringing up things that clearly contradict as if they don't. 
going around with this whole double think, it's never good. You want to see what it's like, what people are like when they go around. Thank you.